We will finish Mark 1 before I go on vacation. Fear ye not. Yeah. Unless I become stricken with some disease and I'm able to preach the next week, but uh, you got it. Uh, today we're looking at uh, 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Father, as we listen to your word, uh, fill us with the knowledge of your will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Do this so that we will walk in a manner worthy of Christ, a way that bears fruit and good works and increases our knowledge. Strengthen us with all power for endurance and patience with joy, knowing that you've delivered us from darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Every one of us here has a relationship with sleep. We don't think about it a whole lot. We usually think about it in terms of, did I get enough sleep? That's really the, the main way we tend to think about it. Uh, sleep is, according to Scripture, a gift. It's something that God gives us to restore us uh, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Uh, it's an essential thing for us. Uh, if we don't get enough sleep, um, you know, I get really grumpy. Uh, but also our brain does not function. Uh, our brain does not recover from the day before and uh, there can be long-term health issues for those who struggle uh, with get, not getting enough sleep. Um, but we also see in Scripture that sleep is something that can be abused. Uh, in fact, uh, in the book I've just finished reading recently, uh, Busy for Self and Lazy for God, um, the Korean pastor who wrote it um, spent two chapters uh, talking about sleep from the Proverbs and the danger of too much sleep. Uh, thinking of some of those proverbs like, as a door upon the hinges is the sluggard in his bed. Uh, or a little, rest, a little rest, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands, and pro- poverty will come upon you like a bandit. Little things like that, uh, that remind us that our tendency can be to not just receive sleep with thanksgiving, but to seek sleep in a very idolatrous kind of way, seeking too much sleep as though uh, sleep was an end in and of itself, as opposed to a means to a greater end. Why am I talking about sleep? I'm talking about sleep because Jesus had a really busy day. Last week, we talked about the very busy day that Jesus had. As he taught in the synagogue, uh, he goes home to Simon's house, heals uh, his mother-in-law from this fever, and then uh, as the sun goes down, suddenly, you know, it seems like, Half of Capernaum is at the door waiting to be healed or have a demon cast out. And so we're not sure how many hours after sundown Jesus spent in personal ministry to various people. But Jesus had a long day. 
And so, we can think, how did he handle that burden? Did Jesus sleep in? Uh, did he toss and turn with anxiety, as I can often do after a, a busy day of ministry, as I, my brain just turns everything over? Uh, yes, your pastor processes every single thing uh, that happens. Um, so, as we think about this question, I want us to, to remember that there are really two focal points. It's almost like we're wearing bifocal glasses, okay? Uh, because the scriptures want us, I believe, to, uh, and Mark in particular, wants us to see two things as we come to this. One is the question is, who is this Jesus that we follow? And, and secondly, um, there's a question of, um, how does this help us to follow him, or what is it intended to look like for us to follow him? Who is Jesus? What does it look like to follow him? And so right now we're looking at it in terms of, okay, what happened? How did Jesus respond to this busy day of ministry? And we see that Mark tells us that rising very early in the morning. So Jesus did not sleep in that day after the hard day, but we see that he actually woke up before dawn. It was still dark when Jesus got up. And Jesus wasn't simply suffering from insomnia like some of us can tend to do, but Jesus had a purpose and getting up early. This was a choice that he made. We see that he, Mark then tells us he departed from the house, in Simon's house, and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Okay? Jesus, in other words, woke up with the intention of praying. And he simply didn't go off to a quiet corner of the house that he was in, but he left the house and went to what is called a desolate place, most likely outside of the uh, city or village boundary markers. And from this, I want us to recognize something. I want us to recognize that sleep is necessary. It doesn't say Jesus didn't sleep. Uh, Jesus was not just God, but also man. And therefore, Jesus not only wept, but slept. Okay. Sleep is necessary, but sleep is also insufficient to a life of ministry and service. In other words, Jesus did need sleep in order to minister to other people, but Jesus also needed something else in addition to sleep in order to minister to other people. Sleep and prayer both mattered in the life of ministry of Jesus, and they both are intended to matter in your life. And that if, if you lack either of them, you're going to have problems. Different kinds of problems, but problems nonetheless. We see in this particular instance that Jesus is creating physical separation for extended prayer. Okay? You, you don't go to a desolate place... Um, you know, travel 15 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever, however long it takes to get to this desolate place, so you can pray for three. Right? Jesus is going outside of the city in order to spend an extended period of time in prayer. He's going to a place where he's going to be free from the distractions that are about to come for him, for him if he stays in Simon's house. There are times when, uh, you know, I've gone to desolate places, parks and things like that. And uh, that is really what happens sometimes if you want to spend an extended time in prayer. You need to go where people won't find you. You need to turn off that cell phone. 
those sorts of things, in order to sp- spend some time undistracted talking to God. Jesus prayed, in part, to regain his priorities. Or maybe I should say this, because Jesus couldn't actually lose his priorities, but to maintain his priorities. He's praying not just to draw on strength through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's remember, okay, from earlier in, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is living in dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit to undergo his ministry. He's not just getting power here, but I believe that he's seeking to maintain his priorities, precisely because the crowds represent a temptation. Because they are putting external pressure on Jesus, seeking to shape his ministry and and twist it so it becomes something other than what he knows it needs to be. And so Jesus, in a sense, is praying, lead me not into temptation. Just as we have to pray that. Jesus is trying to maintain the priorities of ministry as he goes out into the desolate place that morning. When Simon finds Jesus much later, okay, because remember, it's before dawn when Jesus leaves, and now there's this whole period of time when Simon finally wakes up, uh, and the others kind of wake up, and then realize that half of Capernaum is at the doorstep again, and they're going, where in the world is Jesus? And they probably began to search within the city, and then finally moved outside of the city. So we don't know how many hours it took them to find Jesus, but likely it was a few hours. But when he finds Jesus, he says, everyone is looking for you. Hyperbole, most likely. But what we recognize, it's not just he's a lost, like a lost dog that they're looking for, but they're looking for him for a reason. Okay? Let's back up for a second. Josephus, in his uh, book, The Jewish War, uh, he was a, a Jewish historian uh, around the time of the the Jewish War uh, in 70 A.D., uh, notes that Galilee was filled with city villages. So they were sort of like city-sized, but they were, fu- they were structured like villages. Uh, you know, the, there wasn't the big, huge walls and all of those things uh, that usually you have uh, in a city for protection. But anyway, the, Galilee was filled with these city villages of 15,000 or more people. So let, let's say Capernaum is... One of those, because it's in Galilee. And so there's probably at least 15,000 people in Capernaum. Word has continued to spread throughout Capernaum after this night of ministry. Jesus healed my brother-in-law. Jesus cast a demon out of my friend Fred. It wouldn't actually be Fred, but you know. Word has spread, and now the rest of the sick, the rest of the demon-possessed, have likely showed up on Simon Peter's doorstep wanting Jesus to perform a miracle for them. So it's not just that people are looking for him as though he's lost. They're looking for him so they can have a repeat of the night before. What we find as we think of this whole thing here and Jesus' response to what he knows was coming with that temptation and uh, his praying, we see that Jesus is a praying God. 
That's kind of odd to think about in a sense. But when we talk about the fact that Jesus is God and man, we, we try to say that we, he functions. We don't want to always say, well, he did this as God, and he did this as man. We talk about Jesus, the person. And so there's a sense in which Jesus, as the Messiah, is a praying God. The God-man prayed for himself, but he also prayed for the fruitfulness of his ministry, not just in Capernaum, but throughout Galilee. We see that if we remember that Jesus is a king, Jesus is also a pious king. Okay, He's demonstrating piety, which is a good thing. Sometimes now it sounds like a bad thing in our culture. Good thing. In other words, he's, he's what the Old Testament kings were supposed to be. Okay, We read from Deuteronomy 17, which is, uh, gives us the law, as to what, in, in other words, that the kings were supposed to copy the law. Okay? which means they had to read and write. So they had to copy the entire law, the first five books of the, pen, of the Old Testament, and continue to read it so that it would shape who they were and shape how they ruled. They were intended to be pious kings, and they profoundly were not. But here we see Jesus, the pious king who knew and kept the law, but also maintained the devotional practices that we find in the Old Testament, like prayer. Jesus was a praying king. This is in stark contrast to what the Romans would expect. When they read this gospel, they're seeing a a king who's very different than the Caesars that ruled over them, because the Caesars were known for their depravity. They were known for their corruption. They were known for their sexual immorality. They were known for their greed. They were known for their abuses of power. I'm reading John Newton's uh, works right now, and in the second volume, he's got a, a uh, basically a church history. And that, in that, he says, in speaking about the uh, the Caesar Caligula, having rendered himself universally odious by his inhumanity and caprice was assassinated in his palace in the fourth year of his reign. So there we've got a picture of him, uh, an artist's rendering of uh, Caligula being assassinated, just like Julius Caesar was assassinated. There were a number of Caesars who were assassinated, and it's because, in part, they were wicked. Jesus is not a wicked king. Jesus is a good, holy, and righteous king. All right. That's the king we follow, but what does it say about us who follow? Who, what does it mean for us to follow? It means that if we follow Jesus, we too ought to be praying to withstand the pressures of ministry and so that we might see fruitfulness in our ministry. And I'll remind you, your work, if you're employed, is part of your ministry. So you should be praying about the fruitfulness of your work. Uh, that you maintain your Christian character in the, the carrying out of your work. Praying uh, about fruitfulness of your personal ministry, perhaps, uh, to your neighbors or your friends or your extended family. We see all of this. And we see someone like Martin Luther, different day or you know, kind of era. No, the technology was very different. Uh, but all the reports are that Luther spent four hours a day in prayer, and I just can't imagine that. Part of me goes, I ought to get anything done. And you know, what, you know what Luther would say to me? 
Steve, how do you get anything done? <laughs> because you're not praying like that. That's how he saw it. And we need a little more of that. Too often we can fall victim to the American lie of self-sufficiency. And I want to tell you, I want to remind you that, that you do not have spiritual bootstraps to pull yourself up. None of us do. We need him every hour. That's why we pray. It is an expression of our um, dependence upon God. And our prayerlessness uh, often indicates the fact that we still are living under the illusion of our independence from God, our self-sufficiency. The only self-sufficient person in the world is God himself. And even Jesus, though the God-man, prayed. Too often we also allow life to crowd out prayer. Prayer, which is the lifeblood of our service. And so I do encourage you, on the basis of this, that mornings really are oftentimes a good time to pray, especially if you have kids. There's nothing as distracting to me as the kids running around. So I try to get up. Amy does a much better job than me. Um, getting up before the kids get up so that when I'm reading my scriptures and when I'm trying to pray, I'm not distracted by all the hubbubaloo that happens when you have four kids running around. And I can almost, and for, that's one reason I praise God that I now have two teenagers. They sleep in. <laughs> anyway, the good news is, and there's good news here, Jesus still prays for us as a part of his heavenly ministry as our great high priest. We read from Hebrews 7, and there's a reason why we just. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You are sustained in your Christian life by the prayers of Jesus in heaven. You cannot survive. You cannot thrive apart from his prayer ministry to you. Jesus prays when you're weak that you might have strength. Jesus prays when you're perplexed so that you might have wisdom from God. Jesus prays when you're crushed by disappointment that you might be able to stand and continue forward, persevering despite the obstacles. Jesus prays when you feel guilty because you have sinned so that you might know the blessing of forgiveness through His atonement for our sin. Jesus prays when you've been betrayed so that you can trust again. And I could go further and further. Take heart in this God you follow because this God you follow is a praying God who intercedes for you more than you intercede for you. So Jesus prays for us to resist the temptations of life. This kind of produces a second question in my mind. When Jesus prays, 
what do his renewed priorities look like? Or perhaps I should say his maintained priorities look like. You see, Simon likely freaked out that all of these people have lined up at his doorstep. What am I going to do with all these people? I need Jesus. Let's not be too hard on Peter. In fact, I'm not trying to be hard on Peter at all. Peter's new at this following Jesus thing. There's a lot that he doesn't know. There's a lot he still has to learn uh, from Jesus. This is the very beginning. It's like three days, something like that. So Jesus leaves. Simon freaks. Desperately trying to find Jesus. Finally encounters Jesus and says, and almost probably he's grabbing him. Where did you go? Don't you know what's going on back there? I can see. Because that's what I would do if I were in Peter's shoes. Jesus' response to him is not, oh, I guess I better get back. Rather, it's, let's go to the next town. That I may preach there also. Jesus is moving on from the demands of the crowd so that he might fulfill the will of the Father. Okay? His priority was not to heal everybody in Capernaum. That's not why he had been sent. Jesus here is keeping the main thing the main thing. He's keeping the proclamation of the kingdom the most important thing he does, the central piece of all that he does. He wants to make sure that people understand that, as it says in Romans 14, this is a kingdom of righteousness and that unrighteous people need to repent. That this is a kingdom of peace and that unruly people need to repent and receive the peace of God and live at peace with one another. That this is also a kingdom of joy in the Holy Spirit and that frowny-faced people might need to repent and receive joy from God because of their great salvation. And so Jesus is preaching the message of the kingdom so that people can come into the kingdom. Being healed of your illness is insufficient. You must come into the kingdom through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Being Having the demon cast out is insufficient unless you also then come into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is trying to keep the heralding of this message the centerpiece of his ministry in Capernaum. And so the praying God is also the preaching God. Paul talks about the foolishness of preaching. And and when we think about Jesus, it does seem like foolishness. He can change people's hearts without talking to them. And yet, the ordinary means of people coming to faith is through the hearing of the Word. And so Jesus speaks the Word and then grants faith. Generally, he says, that is why I came. Okay? Or came out, rather. He came out so that he might preach not just in Capernaum, but through the other towns as well. And so generally, it's why he came from heaven. 
to proclaim the message of the kingdom, but it's also specifically in this context why he came out of Capernaum. I've, he's done what he needs to do in Capernaum for now, and he needs to go do it in other towns and cities in Galilee as well. What does this say to us as followers of Jesus Christ? I think part of it, what it says to us, is that preparation must lead into proclamation of the kingdom. Uh, while you're not called to preach in that sense, you know, we're not going to, hey, Deb, come on up. It's your turn this week. And uh, next week, it's going to be Jerry Smith. Are you ready, Jerry? Okay. But all of us are heralds, and that's really what the word gets to. The idea of being a herald to the kingdom. So it doesn't matter whether you're a man, a woman, a child. All of us can be heralds of the kingdom and talking about Jesus and what he's done. Saying that he's borne our sin upon the cross. Uh, Saying that he was raised on the third day. Uh, Saying that he has ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We can all say that. It doesn't take much of a theologian. Now, when the questions come, (laughs) that might take a little more. (laughs) But that's okay. Questions come. So, preparation should be leading us into this proclamation of the kingdom so that we're encouraging people to trust or have faith. We're encouraging people to repent or turn around because they're in the kingdom of darkness and need to come into the kingdom of light with the goal that they might begin to worship. Preparation leading to faith, repentance, and worship through the proclamation of the kingdom. And so we see that personal devotion does have a purpose outside of your own relationship with Jesus. It's also preparation so that others might have a relationship with Jesus. And so first Jesus declares his intention, and then Jesus follows through with his disciples. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues. And so Jesus is accessible to the people in his ministry of proclamation. His being apart for a time from people enables him to be together with people or accessible to people in his ministry. And so we see that both of those things work together. It's not all alone. And it's not always all together. But we need both. And that, that formula is going to be different for each of us. Uh, some of us need less time alone. Some of us need more time alone. And for some of us, being in front of people um, or with other people is like exciting and thrilling and you never want to walk away. And for other people, it's like really draining and um, I have a limit. I have 90 minutes. <laughs> you know, whatever. Okay, recognize the differences in people, but the pattern is still the same. Apartness and togetherness. Apartness and togetherness. It's the same thing in marriage. You can't be together all the time. You want to kill each other. You need apartness and togetherness. Apartness and togetherness. So, we see this sort of fleshed out in the life of the early church, for instance. Acts 6 the disciples were engaged in a large part of the, the mercy ministry of the church, and so it was wearing them out, and people were being overlooked. 
particularly the, the Hellenistic widows. And so they appointed these men that we now call deacons uh, to be deacons. But listen to this. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. And then verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so the disciples recognized their priorities as given to them by Jesus, committed to prayer and preaching, but they recognized that mercy still needed to happen, and so people were appointed for the, the mercy ministry to take place. And I imagine they would also say, you need to prepare too and pray. And so we see that uh, Jesus ascended, continues to speak through his apostles in the New Testament, uh, that they are devoted to both the ministry of the word and prayer, and that today even, Jesus continues to speak through pastors and others who are devoted to ministry of the word and prayer. So I would say the good news is, because sometimes we can feel burdens there. Oh man, I, I, I got to be a herald. Jesus preaches through us. Prepare and use the proper means in that. And that's where we get the Charles Gratison Finney. I don't, I'm not sure when we showed him. Yeah, there's good old C.G. Finney. Um, it, it is very tempting to add unbiblical measures to replace the clear preaching of the word. Finney was one of the key figures in the second, what's called the Second Great Awakening, and it was a mixed awakening. There were some very faithful men, and then there were some guys that I would say, like Charles Finney, who developed these methods, uh, you know, the anxious bench, uh, the altar call, these sorts of things that we don't necessarily see in Scripture uh, that really began to shape, and so the people relied on them instead of relying on the preaching of the Word, instead of relying on the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, and so people began to trust in those new measures, and we see the, uh, the, the, some of these new measures continue today. Uh, and I, I think in a lot of ways, distracting from the ministry of the Word. Because um, the minister begins to rely on those things instead of on Jesus. And so Jesus proclaims the kingdom through His people. Another question that kind of emerges for me as I think about this text, and maybe for you, uh, how should we understand the dynamic between preaching and demonstrating the kingdom? Uh, in other words, uh, was it wrong for Jesus to have healed all those people the night before? Was it wrong for Jesus to have cast out those demons the night before? And, and I will say, uh, no, it wasn't wrong. Not at all. The problem was that Jesus was now pressured to perform miracles when he believed he was called to proclaim the kingdom. there are times when we may feel pressure to neglect the centrality of proclamation to reach people. And um, <coughs> hopefully I can make this sort of clear. 
Um, if we think of a ditch, or actually a road, there's a ditch on each side. And following Jesus means that in many ways, we're to stay on the road, but we recognize that there are ditches on either side. Uh, for instance, uh, as an example, uh, one side of the road is license, and the other side of the road is legalism. Okay? As we think about uh, the centrality of the proclamation of the kingdom, on one side would be something like Finney's New Measures that we, you know, we're relying upon gimmicks and tricks so that people uh, raise their hand and walk the aisle and we were able to say, hey, we, we saved so many people this week. On the other hand, we can be um, traditionalists and think that we shouldn't use any means whatsoever, <laughs> recognizing, of course, that God uses means. So it's a delicate balance. It's like a tightrope. There's dangers on both sides of this thing. You know, like for instance, um, music matters. That's one of the reasons why we're looking at a you know looking for a new musical director because we don't want our music to be a hindrance to people to hearing the message. Right? It doesn't mean that we're relying on the music to save people, although the music should be preaching the gospel. So if they hear the, the gospel and the, the singing of our, of our songs and they repent and believe, I'm all for that. So we walk this delicate line between relying on um, artificial means, unbiblical means, and sort of being um, traditionalists that never want to change anything because we never did that before. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it made sense to me once. But we see Jesus, while he's focusing on the, the primary thing of his being a herald of the kingdom, he's not avoiding, he, he's neither only doing or focusing on miracles, but he's also not avoiding miracles. Perhaps that's a better way of me explaining that ditch, those ditches, rather. But we see something interesting happens again, similar to what we saw in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum, preaching in their synagogues, it says, and casting out demons. That the preaching, the heralding of the kingdom will necessarily produce conflict. And Jesus does not back down from the conflict. But he recognizes that the conflict is not against flesh and blood, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, but it's against these rulers, against authorities, against these cosmic powers of this present darkness, these spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. These things are real. And Jesus confronts them. Jesus' coming in the, on earth in his earthly ministry seems to produce an unprecedented level of demonic activity. Oh, if you look in the Old Testament, you really don't see it. There's a couple of places where you see it, and one of them is, uh, as we mentioned, Saul. Okay? But when Jesus comes, all of a sudden it's like demons are everywhere. And it's because he is the 
in himself is the coming of the kingdom that threatens the kingdom of darkness and the spiritual battle is on. And it's a wave of demon after demon that seems to come against Jesus as he brings the message of the kingdom. But the good news, of course, is that Jesus triumphs. He's the one that has victory in every single skirmish. This is all what we would call an intrusion of the uh, cross because there we see in Colossians 2 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus defeats them on the cross, but his power, because it's going to happen, is also displayed before the cross as a foretaste of what Jesus is going to do. We should recognize the binding of Satan that takes place in Revelation 20, uh, that it is a re- it results in the decreased activity so the gospel can be spread to the nations now. In other words, let's put it this way. Jesus is showing his disciples and us that the gates of hell cannot prevail. Gates are defensive. And Jesus, in coming to earth, is storming the gates. And they fall before him. People are being set free. The kingdom is growing because Jesus is at work despite opposition. We could think of many places in the world where that is taking place. One place right now that is taking place is Iran. Iran has some of the fastest church growth in the world right now. It's not what we think of because it's so small, but it's growing really fast as people are realizing the emptiness of uh, that form of Islam in their own country. Many of them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are turning to Jesus. And so if we kind of want to think this all through, kind of where I'm going with this is that mercy supports the ministry of the Word, but mercy should not supplant the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word should not reject the ministry of mercy. So there's our, there's our road. We, we aren't dominated by it, but we don't reject it. We see that the ministry of the Word will produce opportunities for mercy, and we should show mercy to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. But we have to focus on the ministry of the Word. And so Jesus provokes His enemies through the proclamation of the kingdom. Now, if I was to wrap this whole thing up, I would summarize it as as piety prepares the way for ministry, both Jesus and ours. Because we see that way in the life of Jesus, it ought to be that way in our life as well. At times, if we look very quickly, the ministry of Jesus can, can look unbalanced, but ultimately, if we pay attention, it's not unbalanced. His need for sleep is balanced by His need for prayer. His need for time alone is balanced by a time of public ministry. 
His priority for the preaching of the word does not exclude the mercy ministry that the preaching produces. We follow a Jesus who experienced limitations. Jesus slept. A Jesus who felt pressure from outside, and so he prayed. And this praying God is a preaching God. So that those who repent and believe will begin to follow this pattern of personal preparation in order to be public heralds of this kingdom using the means of word and action. So I'd like you to think about what does it look like for you to believe and follow Jesus in light of what we see here in the tail end of Mark 1. Let's pray. Father, um, I feel like I dumped a whole lot of stuff on people. Help them to process it. Help them to think it through. Help them to see Jesus for who He is. How He's revealed to us in these Scriptures so that we can trust that Jesus. And also know that that Jesus is going to be at work to make us like Him. That just as He is a fisher of men, He wants to make us fishers of men. Uh, Just as He is a praying God, He wants to make us a praying people. As He's a preaching God, He wants to make us a preaching people. Help us not to resist. Humble our hearts so that we fall in line with what you're doing by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.